Okay, I'm here with Jeremy Holland, who is a managing partner of origination for the Riverside Company, and he is one of the most well-known names in the industry, and particularly within the BD community. Uh, Jeremy, thanks for coming on the vlog podcast. I would love to hear the high level about you, the Riverside Company, and then we can dive deep into to your life story. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm a partner with the origination team at Riverside. The Riverside Company is a 30-plus-year-old private equity firm, and we manage approximately $10 billion, but remain focused on the entrepreneurial end of the market with a control fund in Europe, uh, one for Asia-Pacific, and the remaining teams in North America, control, non-control, bigger, smaller, you name it. When you think about entrepreneurship, what are some of the, uh, maybe some of the success stories that you've seen in the, in the funds and that kind of like, this is a Riverside deal. These are the kind of things that we love to do. Uh, there's so many having invested in more than 650 companies. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot to choose from. Um, I, I think that it's really, there, there's so many. Uh, when, when you look at time and time again, the, the stories I like are the ones where we proactively said we weren't going to invest in a sector. And yet, when we received information on the company, we were really blown away by the creativity that the entrepreneurs had and just a completely differentiated product, brand, business model, you name it. It's been really great. You know, a few examples that come to mind, Blue Microphone that was at, right here out in Westlake Village, mm -hmm. uh, not too far from where I live, uh, was in a category, branded consumer electronics that we thought changed so rapidly and just what wasn't our core expertise. But once we really got in there and took a look and most importantly met management, we were blown away by the opportunity. Great run over several years and ended up selling it to Logitech, the big publicly traded company. Um, that one was, was a lot of fun. Another that comes yeah. to mind was Tate's Cookies out of the Hamptons. Uh, Kathleen King was really looking for a true partner to have her cake and eat it too, in terms of a liquidity event and truly getting that second bite of the apple that everybody talks about. And a lot of people didn't believe that that brand would travel. We had a fantastic run together, made a lot of operational improvements, additions to management, took it coast to coast and ultimately realized her dream of selling it to Mondelez. You know, just a couple of so many examples where entrepreneurs were at the heart of a business, mm. and we were fortunate enough to help them out. Well, as a smaller entrepreneur myself, it's, uh, I think this next cycle is going to be quite interesting for everyone in the industry. <laughs> um, but I, I'd love to hear kind of, you know, what is your life story? I'm probably the polar opposite of everybody else in private equity. I grew up in Bakersfield, California, of all places. Uh, had the joy of putting myself through school. Uh, worked 30 hours a week as a junior in high school, 40 as a senior and all the way through college. Uh, might be one of the only private equity guys in the world that went to junior college. Ultimately graduated from Cal State Northridge, which other than being demolished by an earthquake, <laughs> might not be known to too many listening to this, uh, but is arguably one of the best accounting programs on the West Coast, and had a, a desire to get into investment banking or private equity. And was fortunate that uh, in the very last final of my senior year, uh, Dr. Jennings, the department chair, comes in, drops a note on my desk. It says Fred and has a phone number. 
and I didn't even know what the context was. Uh, called the number and they said, you know, we're a private equity firm, Butwood Capital, down in Sherman Oaks. Love for you to come down and interview right now. Went down there. I think they were surprised. They found a state school kid, a fraternity guy who had a deep passion for wanting to be in private equity. I had read everything I could find on the industry, which back then was probably about a dozen books. And uh, I don't think they believed I'd actually read them all. Uh, Fred was quizzing me on, on them. He has a nearly photographic memory. Ultimately, they kind of hemmed in hot for a few weeks. Um, you know, back then there really weren't analysts in private equity and they didn't really know what they'd do with one. I put it to them that I'd work for free. I said, look guys, I'm paying to go to school, not learning specifically what I want to learn. Give me a shot. If it doesn't work out, tell me to go home. And they said, well, we won't let you work for free, but we'll start you out low and see how it goes. And it was fantastic. And they didn't know what to do with me. I sat in on every negotiation, every meeting, you name it, because they didn't really have any way to specifically train me. Uh, So while it was an alternative uh, first few years of a career, it was fantastic. And so really, uh, Fred Ulrich gave me the, the shot that made all the difference. What does Fred mean to you? It's hard to put into words. He, I think he saw something in himself. He was a, an army brat that used the GI Bill himself to go to HBS. He saw something in me that was worth giving me a shot. You know, he, he, was, a, he was a real mentor. It was a real, uh, real powerful experience for him to open the door and, and teach me private equity from the ground up. So it's, it's been a, a powerful relationship. What's that story that you had recently with him? Uh, we, we had lunch. Uh, you know, Fred's getting older now. Uh, we had lunch not too long ago at his favorite restaurant in Calabasas. And, and on the way out, he, uh, he stopped and said, you know, you wouldn't be where you are today if I didn't give you a chance. And, and he didn't mean that in a, in a self-complimentary way, but rather an honest question. And I said, absolutely not. You know, it made all the difference. And, and I really appreciate you, you giving me a shot. And, you know, he, he held my hand and, and said, I'm proud of you. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. But uh, it was a, it's probably the most special moment I've had in my career, certainly with, with a non-family member. What do you think he saw in you? You know, when you look at what you had to get in, and now 20 plus years into your career, what do you think are your superpowers? The grit, the grind. He gave me a shot and I wasn't going to let him down. Uh, I was working 100 plus hours a week, uh, even when not warranted or asked to. I didn't want to, to miss a beat. And back then we didn't have cell phones and whatnot. So I used to spend my weekends in the office even when there was no work to do. Figured I could read a book at home or I could read it in the office. I was there just in case they needed me. So I used to joke that whatever you can do in a 40-hour work week, I'm smart enough that I can do it in a 100-hour work week. Um, (laughs) Where where does this come from? I mean, what's, what's the family background? Where do these traits come from? I mean, you're working 30 hours a week as a junior in high school, 40 hours a week as a senior in high school. Like, what's the bigger context here? Very military family. Uh, Almost everybody uh, prior to my generation was Air Force. My great-grandfather was a CB because he was a a Finnish carpenter. Very military family. Uh, Just a lot of self-made traditional American story with each generation doing slightly better than the next. Uh, but, you know, in, in towns like Bakersfield, you get uh, 
a different kind of person, a different kind of perspective, and, and you got to make your own way. What do you think about this next generation? You have uh, you have two the, kids. The, I mean, I guess I guess I can ask what do you think about my generation? <laughs> are we just all doomed, or like how do we, you know, what, what are some of the principles from your upbringing? The principles from what built these generations? What are these principles that we need to think and have front of mind, kind of going into a recession, going into you know some really tough times? Uh, well, I'll start with the first question. The the young people on our team are fantastic, incredible work ethic, great time management skills. Several of them were elite athletes, and I think that helps just the their background and, and having to keep up their schoolwork as, as well as their athletics and, and other activities. Um, but we, we've got some, some really powerhouse young people. I know the reputation that millennials have, but my team disproves it every day. So I, I don't know that it's generational as much as it's person to person. You know, I, I think the second part of your question is the, is really key. Everyone has to really take a, an opportunity to be proactive and figure out how they can add enough value in, to other people, not just their employer, but to other people in the industry and proactively build goodwill by helping people find a job or helping connect somebody into an investment opportunity or whatever it is, but you can't start early enough in building these relationships and building your network. And when I say network, I don't mean going to an industry event and handing out business cards. I mean, real relationships that will sustain you throughout your career. And in tough times, you'll find that those relationships make all the difference in the world. I've noticed in the past couple of weeks in particular, how all of a sudden there's a strong sense of community <laughs> and people are realizing that we, we can't be just transactionally focused. You do have to be a member of a community. And a lot of times that requires giving a lot, which is even harder when everyone is feeling the financial pain and everyone is looking at the numbers and you're thinking, I got to put food on the table. Is this conversation putting food on the table? But that instinct, which is like a sales instinct, is actually the opposite of what builds, what actually builds community what actually builds meaningful relationships. You're absolutely right. You've got to think about the long-term career path and the long-term game and really helping great people will pay pay off in the end. It may not pay today, might not pay five years from now, but if you've been instrumental in helping somebody in their career, maybe 25 years from now, and you need something, they're going to pick up that phone. So I understand that a lot of people want to focus on what's going to pay them today. But the things I'm talking about aren't massive investments of time. Much more about caring about those people and helping them with the next steps. Those, these are often email introductions, quick phone calls, a late night or a weekend call when they're about to go to an interview and need a pep talk. These aren't major investments of, of time or money. It's more about caring enough to allocate them the, the mind share. You've been at Riverside for 10 years now in the origination role. Tell me about getting into this role originally, number one. And then can you, because you've been in this particular role for 10 years, you've seen the evolution of BD as a profession. So I'd love to hear how you got into this, what it was like in the beginning, 
And was it different from all your, what your friends are saying, what your friends are doing, your colleagues? Yeah, just love to hear, hear about that if we could rewind a little bit. Sure. So the first 12 years of my career were um, soup to nuts. You know, in a small firm environment, you do everything. You raise the money, find the deals, do the diligence, the documentation, sit on the board to exit. And that was a fantastic education. About 10 years ago, Riverside reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested in moving into an origination role, which I was excited about. Uh, a couple friends of mine in the industry told me I was, quote, throwing my career away <laughs> by moving to the business development side. But, you know, after 12 years of building models, I don't care what title you give me, you still feel like an analyst if, if you don't have anybody <laughs> beneath you to help you out. And I, I think it was the best decision I ever made. You know, with Riverside, we have enough scale that you can put the right athlete in the right position. You don't have to be a jack of all trades, master of none. You can really focus and therefore try, excel at that at that part of it. How many people are on the in, like pure originations role within Riverside? In North America, we have 15. If you count the senior, junior, as well as our um, admin team that we call coordinators. And then over in Australia and Europe, they have uh, additional colleagues. Can you talk a little bit more about the idea around putting the right athletes in the right place? So, you know, not everybody is excellent at every aspect of the deal, right? It's a very different skill set to be a world-class board member, meaning a mentor to the management team, a sounding board, what have you, uh, operational issues, as well as the deal detailed due diligence process, front-end business development process, the exit process, fundraising, all of those different things, those are all different skill sets. And what's great about our model is that it really liberates you to focus in on what you enjoy. And it turns out you tend to enjoy the things you're better at. And if you're not enjoying something, that tends to get pushed on the back burner and gets procrastinated. So when you put the right athletes in the right position, you get a focus and an enthusiasm uh, in their role that you wouldn't find if everybody was a generalist across the functions. When you look at BD, which has become a, a true profession within the industry, you know, we can call it sales. We can call it sales and marketing. You know, it's kind of gone through its own you know, coming of age. What have you seen since you've been in this industry, in this particular role at this firm for 10 years and in the industry for 20 years? What have you seen for the evolution of the role? Complete change. You know, went back to the earlier point when I said that people thought I was throwing my career away. Clearly at that time, uh, originators were this second class citizen, if you will, and really viewed differently. Uh, today, where it, Everybody has capital. Everybody knows how to build financial models. Everybody knows how to run due diligence. Many of those things are less valuable. And what matters today are the relationships, not just to find opportunities, but to win opportunities in the marketplace. And so in the last four or five years, origination professionals have become the bell of the ball. You can write your own ticket. I can't tell you how many calls I've gotten over the years about other firms and other opportunities. 
but I really enjoy Riverside and, and the unique culture here and, and have been very happy to refer friends into those opportunities. I was having this discussion with uh, another head of business development, actually out in uh, LA, and we were kind of debating, like, what percentage of your, of your job is actually sales and marketing, you know, as opposed to investment analysis, you know, some firms are set up where it's like, other people go off and hunt, then they throw it over the wall, but like, they're really focused at the hunting. Some people have to wear multiple hats. What percentage of maybe your job, but as well as the, the BD team within Riverside, do you think is, is true traditional sales and marketing, keeping your name in front of people, building the name, that kind of stuff. Uh, You know, for us, it might be a little bit more focused because we do have a separate dedicated marketing team, which is a luxury that few firms would have. Uh, So they're creating the collateral videos, the website, uh, our unique programming that we do with all of our executives, the list goes on and on really. I'm forgetting many things they do. Um, where our team is the front end finder and filter of investment opportunities. So we probably see 5,000 opportunities a year globally across the different funds and strategies. A much smaller percentage of those are going to get discussed on Monday. So we're leveraging the investment professional's time by filtering out all those non-starters. But then beyond that, we have a little bit of a different culture in that it's not my deal or your deal. It's Riverside's opportunity. And we're going to stay as involved as we need to be along the process. Or if the the team really doesn't need me involved, I'm going to step away as quickly as I can. So it takes a, a low ego on our team to be able to walk away when you have a team that knows that industry really well, they've clicked with management things are off to the races and be able to reallocate your time to the next activity. So to answer your question, I would say maybe 50 to 60% on our team. What do originators do in not just a recessionary environment, but in this, oh my God, what's happening? Everything's freezing. Deals are dying. You know, you've been, you've seen the ups and downs in your career and you're an expert in origination. What are, a couple of specific ways that the BD community out there can, you know, a couple of things that they can think about to help, you know, bring a sense of calm and maybe some very specific things that to help structure their week or just what are we doing day to day when deals aren't happening? I got a lot of those phone calls this week. (laughs) I said, first breathe, turn off CNBC and focus on your job. You know, we we keep moving forward. The great thing about having committed capital is that we are in a position to help. We've got portfolio companies, and we're fortunate to have a great depth of operating partners to help them model through all of their needs and contingencies and scenarios. And what the origination team needs to do is stay very actively in market and not worry about what other pieces may be doing, whether or not lenders might be hesitant. If you find great opportunities, we will find the capital, whether it's all done with all equity or otherwise. And just a couple days ago, we closed an add-on acquisition to one of our software platforms. A week before that, we acquired food ingredient business, and we did that one with all equity. When we put no financing contingency in our offer, we mean it. 
and we can always go back and refinance the company when the market calms down. But it's important that you stay open and active and looking for those. In dislocations, that's where some of the best opportunities come. You know, if you come across an entrepreneur who's 85 years old, even if they're healthy, they may just see this dislocation and say, you know, I'm not really interested in working through another cycle. I've been through so many in my career that I'd rather just figure something out. Uh, th this environment is rife for add-on opportunities. So the first step that I recommend is reaching out to all of the, com the competitors to your portfolio companies that are in a position to, to do more and let them know that in these times of stress that we're here if you need us. And if not, that's okay too. But at least you, you know that the door is open. The really amazing opportunities can be. When you think about your day and your week, do you have a particular structure that has worked for you? Or is it like, how do you think about approaching your days? I finally gave up and just started living on East Coast time. <laughs> and the majority of our firm is in uh, Cleveland or New York. The regimen is to get up early and assess whether or not there's any burning matters. Uh, you know, start the, the pot of coffee around 4.30. Um, feed my son, my eight-year-old, around 5.30. And the good thing is I don't commute to the office, so I am in my chair uh, before 6 <laughs> a.m. Pacific. And you know, the sun comes up and, and we're off to the races. But you know, every day is different in origination and you have different sets of priorities. Really, it's as simple as maximizing your day parts, making sure that you're doing those, those sim reviews uh, at night and maintaining your, your best uh, daytime hours for meetings and calls and such. Our role isn't that complex. It's just a matter of discipline and execution. And if you just put in the hours and organize your time, be a good person along the way, it's amazing what can get done. Awesome. So let's, let's shift over to a little uh, flash, flash question round. First question is, what book has had the most influence on you in your life? I would have to say Moneyball. I'm a huge Oakland A's fan. And what I took away from that was not what seems to be discussed. Uh, I don't believe that book was about on-base percentage, and I don't believe that book was about salary caps. To me, the book was about if you're doing the same thing as everybody else, you're going to get the same result. Mm -hmm. So if you are a team like the A's and have some form of constraints or disadvantages, you better think differently and do things differently to find a path to success. If you had a spirit animal, what would that spirit animal be? <laughs> It's funny you say that. My It's one of my eight-year-old's favorite questions is asking people what their favorite animal is. And so uh, at the moment, his favorite answer is, I think I stole it from a Saturday Night Live skip or something. I think it was a Jack Handy deep thoughts uh, where somewhere in there he had a shark riding on an elephant's back, stomping <laughs> and jumping its way through life or something like that. He, yeah, Jack thinks that's hilarious. So I guess I'd have to go with a shark riding on an elephant's back. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, and if, if there is, you know, when you look at the, 
you know, the, the trajectory of your career um, and some of the principles or maybe some guiding quotes. Is, is there a kind of a quote that you live by that has just kind of stood the test of time in your career? Uh, you know, not a, not a particular quote. I think it's more the, the mindset of helping other people. And, you know, I've really built my career on focusing on really great people who might be down on their luck and helping them with the next step in their career or um, they've gone out on their own and you're able to refer them some of their first investment opportunities that, that get done and, and proactively building great relationships. You know, the, I think it's more of the philosophy that somewhere uh, in the world, someone is talking about you right now. They could speak be speaking ill of you or they could be speaking glowingly of you and you can't necessarily control that but you can uh, as we say at Riverside we leave great references in our wake uh, just do our best to help other people and and it, it seems to work out in the long run that's great well I appreciate your time on this podcast this has been Fantastic. I'm glad we've been able to quickly get this thing going <laughs> in the new normal that we are living on and uh, look forward to reconnecting in the future. Thank you. Be well. Be well.